Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the big and complex issues in the multitude of countries that we cover from the ground. My name is Amrin Zaman and with us today to discuss Iraq and all of the challenges it faces as it heads towards elections next month is Bilal Wahab, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Bilal is a keen observer of and widely read commentator on Iraq's fraud politics. We will be talking about the elections, his native Kurdistan, and the dynastic dramas unfolding there, as well as the angst gripping many Iraqis as they watched America's messy exit from Afghanistan. So welcome to our show, Bilal. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Amberin, for having me. So you're just freshly returned from Iraq and you had an extremely interesting trip there, met tons of people, went all across the country, and you wrote a terribly interesting piece for foreign policy talking about how Iraqis reacted to the debacle in Afghanistan. You said no one is more shocked by what happened there than the people of Iraq. And more than any, well, anyone else, they worry their country could face a similar fate. Can you talk a bit about that? And why is it that the Iraqis are so worried that this might be repeated in their own country? Sure. The, uh, the Iraqis worry uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, least of which are the clear parallels between Afghanistan and Iraq, the corruption of the government, the ineffectiveness of service delivery, uh, the dependence both politically and militarily on the United States. Uh, but of course, the Iraqis are mindful that while the war in Afghanistan was a war of necessity, uh, as the American officials say, the invasion of Iraq was a war of choice. So obviously they would worry that if this is how Washington treats their war of necessity, then uh, the Iraqis probably have the right to worry. And in 2011, uh, the United States military withdrew from Iraq and uh, it took only two years later where ISIS took over a third of the country, uh, which then compelled the United States to come back and lead the anti-ISIS coalition. So that gives the Iraqis, uh, the events in Afghanistan gives Iraqis uh, a deja vu of their own experience with a withdrawal of U.S. forces and them having to come back. On the other, the shifts in U.S. politics uh, have been sending very mixed signals to Baghdad. Iraqis all of a sudden have to make sense of a very chaotic U.S. politics. Uh, Secretary Pompeo, for example, threatened to shut down the U.S. embassy and withdraw the troops uh, if the militia attacks uh, continued. And this threat was rather credible because uh, the State Department had already shut down the U.S. consulate in Basra for similar reasons. So the threat of rupturing the U.S.-Iraq relation has been pushed by Iran, uh, pushed by pro-Iran militias in Iraq, and somehow uh, Washington has also been receptive to that kind of pressure and that kind of demand. So seeing how quickly uh, the Taliban took over, Iraqis started really worrying, drawing all the parallels, but also uh, doubting U.S. commitment. May I just jump in with another question? You say the Iraqis are worried, but which are Iraqis? Because 
In saying that, you seem to suggest that a majority of Iraqis would very much want the United States to stay. If that's the case, why? That's a good question. The Iraqis that I refer to who worry um, are perhaps those in the leadership whose very power and presence depends on the United States. So those in the Iraqi government and those in the Kurdistan regional government, the KRG. But there is also fear among you know, family and friends and the former students that I talked to, because uh, unlike Afghanistan, you don't have one unified Taliban with a history of running the country, coming back. In the case of Iraq, the alternative to the, the status quo with all of its corruption and dysfunction is perhaps not a unified militia uh, taking over, but perhaps uh, a civil war, more chaos. Uh, the KRG might uh, try secession one more time. The militias in the South are trying to take over the government and put an end to party politics in favor of militia politics. And then the uh, Sunni region is also scrambling for what they actually want, because they're also divided across Kurdish and Shia military and political lines. So I think the stakes are higher. And then, of course, Iran is a country that is reviled by many Iraqis. If you look at the polls, in one recent poll, 88% of uh, Iraqis say that Iran has harmful influence in Iraq. And uh, a majority also say that uh, is going to have uh, significant influence uh, in the upcoming elections. Uh, so any vacuum that Washington is going to leave behind is going to be filled either by civil war or by uh, further Iranian influence, which is seen not only negatively uh, in polls, but also the whole premise of the 2019 protest movement in Iraq, which initially started as a grievance against lack of services and demand for jobs, quickly turned in an anti-Iran direction because much of the corruption, the sectarianism, and the government dysfunction is easily traced back to Iranian influence, which sees a strong Iraq, whether it's controlled by militias or Shia parties or whoever. Uh, Iran sees uh, Iraq, uh, a strong Iraq, as a danger uh, and, and as a threat. So maybe once upon a time, they... They were happy. People in Tehran might have been happy if Iraq is controlled by Shia parties. But I think the calculus has changed that Iraq has to remain weak. And many Iraqis see that. They see it in the military. They see it in the economic predation, the overpriced gas, the cheap uh, material that they send, stunting local business and local agriculture. So the anti-Iran bent and the uh, worry about greater Iranian influence is true not only in the Kurdish and Sunni areas, but in the Shia heartland where the, where the protest movement of 2019 uh, was sparked. You spoke of the elections. They're supposed to be held on October 10th. And when you look at Iraq and you look at past elections and the kind of governments that they delivered and the sort of governance that uh, we witnessed under those uh, governments, one sort of throws one's hands up in despair and sort of says, you know, what difference are these elections really going to make? And, you know, there's going to be all this sort of 
horse trading that will go on for months after the election itself and take a long time to set up a government. What difference can this election make, if any at all? And what, what are Hakadimi's chances of winning? Those doubts come up uh, in almost every meeting. And in fact, election after election since 2005, the turnout has been going uh, further down. So that turnout is only expected to actually be even lower in the uh, to, in the 2021 early elections because one, not much has changed on the ground in terms of jobs, economic reform, uh, service delivery, uh, and the political system is perhaps even more fragmented, uh, even more prone to patronage politics rather than accountability and service delivery. Uh, in fact, one new trend in Iraqi politics is that sectarianism is waning and losing to just outright patronage politics. So you have vertical alliances of Shia, Sunni, and Kurds whose common thread is uh, getting into government and winning seats and uh, divvying up the, uh, the cake and the, the spoils of, of governance. And there is little room for what the public wants. And I think that's what also, as I said, sparked the, the protest movement. It was not a protest movement against a single party or a single group. Their demand, their main slogan was, we need a homeland. A majority of Iraqis see corruption as the biggest problem facing Iraq today. Uh, corruption in Iraq, I argue, is a matter of national security. It's why the military did not fight against ISIS in 2000. Uh, 14. It's why uh, people don't have confidence in the elections. It's why people don't go out to vote. But there is also, uh, other than fraud and uh, lack of confidence in elections bringing about any change, the protest movement was a black swan event. But the transition or the transformation from a, a street protest movement into a political party uh, a, it's not easy, and B, has been interrupted by targeted violence, by a campaign of assassination against uh, the leaders uh, and their activists. So the two main constituencies that have been calling for early elections, uh, namely the protesters and uh, the Marja'iya of Najaf, both have gotten cold feet. Uh, Najaf isn't really talking about elections. Uh, many still count that uh, Grand Ayatollah Sistani might call on Iraqis to go and vote as he did in 2014, which really boosted turnout. In 2018, he basically said, it's up to people. They have the choice of voting and not voting. And that was seen as lack of encouragement for voting. I don't anticipate that he will come out and support people, encourage people to go and vote, which, uh, and then the protesters are now are boycotting, some are calling for uh, disrupting the elections, and few have uh, created new political parties that are challenging the, the establishment. So it was rather surprising to me on my last trip how often uh, the conversations turned toward alternatives to democracy. So I'm talking about amending the constitution toward the strong presidential system, obviously seeking uh, someone with whom the buck stops, uh, others were talking about uh, a repetition of the scenario that happened in, in Egypt and perhaps more recently in Tunisia, 
others yearning for a strong military leader who would uh, come and, and rule the country and impose some order. Obviously, the majority of Iraqis today uh, do not remember Saddam Hussein. They have lived under this system of patronage politics, competitive politics, and therefore corrupt system of, of uh, lack of services and dysfunction. So they don't have the Saddam Hussein point of comparison. So to me, that was also one perhaps shocking uh, takeaway from my last trip to Iraq and Kurdistan. Well, your description of the place is pretty bleak and it doesn't sound like these elections are going to change anything. You still have to tell me about Hadimi's future. Will he be the next prime minister of Iraq? Will he survive? I think Prime Minister Khadimi stopped the bleeding of Iraqi sovereignty and perhaps its reputation in the region. Uh, the Baghdad summit that invited uh, leaders from the region uh, from Iraq's Arab neighbors and, of course, uh, French President Macron, uh, was a good show of uh, an Iraq that is not only a playground for competition between United States and Iran, and uh, perhaps also addresses the criticism that Iran's outside influence in Iraq, which makes headlines, and even you and I talked about it right now, uh, is in part a factor of the absence of the others. So Khalidmi has, has done a good job of, uh, on these two fronts. However, Khalidmi has a tendency to overpromise and, and deliver, especially in the eyes of Iraqis. So he's perhaps more popular in Abu Dhabi and uh, Cairo and, and Paris and Washington DC than he is in Baghdad uh, and Erbil because what matters to the Iraqi public um, is fighting corruption, which he has done little about, uh, creating job opportunities and reforming the economy, about which he has made significant promises in the form of the, a white paper for economic reforms, but has delivered little in the eyes of the Iraqi public. Uh, and of course, paving the ground for credible elections. And I already pointed out that uh, trust and confidence in the election is very low, and uh, he hasn't been able to stop the campaign of assassinations against new faces uh, of politics that might be uh, a source of um, fresh ideas and, and perhaps uh, be in opposition, even if not in government, in the uh, government that comes after the October, 20, uh, October 2021 20, elections. So, um, that's what Kadimi is, but I think he does have a chance of becoming a full-term prime minister after the elections because mainly he poses no significant threat to the establishment and to the status quo. So does that in turn mean that we're just going to have a fresh cycle of protests and you know more suppression of them and more violence? Is that what the future holds for Iraq? I mean, not to be all negative. In fact, uh, just from uh, my many conversations, I also met with civil society groups, journalists. Uh, you know, I, I was teaching at uh, the American University there. So former students who now have got started careers uh, since their graduation. There is a sense of Iraqi agency that one can very easily uh, touch that uh, Iraqis who say 
this is our country. Uh, no one is gonna be here for us um, forever. Um, and it's a, it's a question of how much the political system gives space to this new and emergent Iraqi nationalism. The protest movement itself that managed to topple an Iraqi government, uh, to me, was a black swan event that uh, was not anticipated to be that strong. And in fact, it was COVID rather than government crackdown uh, that put an end to it. And government crackdown was severe. They killed, uh, by government accounts, uh, more than 600 people and injured thousands. But it was actually COVID that sent the people home. So I think the embers of that protest movement are still there and they pose a threat to the status quo. It's a question of whether the current political system, which is increasingly infiltrated by militias turned politicians, whether they can cater to the needs or whether they continue to suppress it. And I think that is yet to be seen. So closer to home in Iraqi Kurdistan, what was your impression of the situation there with the impact of COVID relations with Baghdad and the internal discord between various Kurdish groups? Quite a bit of drama, no? Some of the political disillusionment that I outlined about Iraq uh, definitely applies to uh, Kurdistan. In fact, there is perhaps greater certainty that the two ruling parties, the KDP and the PUK, will continue to rule and oppose um, unlike the more volatile political landscape uh, down south. But I think KRG still suffers from perhaps two major events and trends. Uh, one is uh, the death of leaders like Mam Jalal and Noshua Mustafa uh, and the aging of, of other leaders and the transition of leadership to a younger generation uh, that has already been ushered in that is a source of a lot of uh, risk and, uh, and worry uh, because the younger generation of leaders are less attuned with the public, they're more isolated on one hand. On the other, they're more self-righteous, uh, so to speak, uh, and uh, perhaps more extremist in their approach to politics. For example, I was in, uh, I was in Kurdistan when Within the PUK, uh, the two leaders who are each other's cousins, Bafal Talabani and Lahur Talabani, had a family feud that turned perhaps into a family coup where Bafal Talabani accused his cousin and the co-chair of the PUK, Lahur, uh, of poisoning him. And therefore, Bafal tried to oust uh, Lahur from uh, the leadership of the elite counterterrorism force and the Zanyari intelligence agency. And that conflict continues. And such a rivalry between cousins is also mirrored in the Barzani family between uh, Nechirvan Barzani, who is currently the president of the KRG and has been the face of Kurdish politics uh, for the past decade and a half. Uh, and he's the one who you know, with all of the good and the bad, has managed KRG, the economy, the oil industry, uh, the image to the world. And then, of course, uh, the corruption and the dysfunction also falls on his table. Uh, but now there has been a change of seats where Nechirvan Barzani is no longer prime minister, but he's the president, while uh, Masrur Barzani, uh, Nechirvan's cousin and brother-in-law, 
uh, is now prime minister. But uh, the new prime minister has said in his inaugural speech that he ushers in a new era of Kurdish politics. Very ambitious. Uh, he comes from an intelligence background and he's been trying to uh, stamp his mark on Kurdish politics. Uh, but he also has been facing difficulty making that transition from an intel and security background surrounded by loyalists into becoming a prime minister where he has to reach across the aisle and deal with um, opposition, but also play politics. So that transition is also creating risks, not only for uh, how stable the KRG is going to be, how different the future of KRG is going to be, but also sends, I think, mixed signals to business as well as to KRG's uh, regional friends and probably friends uh, far away as well. Um, the other factor, I think, is the referendum, which the KRG hasn't yet recovered from. Uh, the political and military and economic loss has made the KRG ever more dependent on Baghdad. The KRG is unable to pay salaries in full and on time without a cash transfer from Baghdad. And that just weakens the KRG structurally. And this is all on top of all of the structural issues that the KRG had, such as um, um, unified militia, uh, distrust of the Iraqi government, the many reforms that are needed at home. And, but on top of this, I think there are two new challenges that the KRG faces, well, two newish challenges. One of them is uh, the PKK, which presents, now that they also have uh, their offshoot in Syria, is presenting a governance model. It presents a different model to the way that the KDP and the PUK have been running the Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, uh, part of the greater Kurdistan, if you, if you speak in transnational Kurdish uh, terms. And then the second threat is uh, the militia attacks using rockets and increasingly using drones against Erbil. This level of threat on Erbil airport, on Erbil city, is in fact much greater than the, the threat that even ISIS posed on the KRG when they were a caliphate holding territory. Uh, ISIS never managed to pose a threat to uh, Erbil city, but today the militias can. So the KRG is really cornered in a way, both economically, uh, militarily, and politically. And they're also, like politicians in Baghdad, are increasingly worried about the mixed signals that Washington uh, sends in their way. Uh, and um, they're also trying to find out who would be a good alternative to Washington that could guarantee the safety and security of the KRG because they feel, the leaders feel that they are too weak today to separate from Iraq, as the referendum showed, but they're also too weak to be Iraq's kingmakers and be able to fix Iraq and make it a country where they can feel uh, secure. Well, I mean, how do the ordinary Iraqi Kurdish people feel about all of this? I mean, is there still a yearning for independence? I think the Kurdish public is rather lost. The referendum was a, was a very bad shock because the rallying for the referendum by the Kurdish parties, especially by the KDP, was one that basically, don't worry, the, the books have been cooked and uh, all we need is to do this and move on. So there is a a sad awakening there that uh, 
the international community wasn't wasn't ready for a Kurdish state and the Kurdish leadership wasn't straightforward with the public. But on the other hand, they're also worried about these um, additional threats that I mentioned, the militia attacks, uh, people worry about ISIS, and of course, mind you, uh, how possible is it to explain to a, a Kurdish taxi driver or, or, or even a university teacher that uh, the United States you know, made a mistake in Kabul or he was not well prepared and that's why the Taliban has such a swift, swift victory. In that part of the world, Washington does not make mistakes. Washington makes plans. So they interpret the events in Afghanistan as a deal that the United States struck with the Taliban and hand them, handed them power. So they look around and they can easily draw parallels and that gives them jitters. I was trying to rent a car and uh, so I, I, I asked uh, uh, the, the, the people in the company, I said, uh, how is business? How is the car market? And one of them told me that it all depends on the TV's news alerts. If the news alerts are good, then prices go up. If the news alerts are bad, then prices go down. So to me, uh, they're basically living day to day uh, because their future, both short-term and long-term, is, uh, is rather unknown. Well, on that rather woeful note, um, I think it's time to close the show because uh, we're running over time. It's always great to talk to you, Bilal. Thank you so much again for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Amberine. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. We look forward to being with you very soon with more interesting guests. Thank you.